Well, the words I'd like to consider with you are found in the fifth chapter of the book of Luke. So if you could turn with me there to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, and we will begin by reading the first 11 verses. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, this is a passage that I'm sure most of us are very familiar with, and that's the danger there, being overly familiar with certain passages of Scripture. But there's, I think, a lot for us to consider here this morning. And the first thing I'd like to discuss briefly is the context of this passage. What is going on? Well... At this point, Jesus had been baptized. The Holy Spirit had been poured out on him. The Spirit then had led him into the wilderness to be tempted. And he was then prophesied to be in this area of Galilee to begin his public ministry. Now, Galilee was not exactly considered to be the nicest area, per se, Jesus had left Lower Galilee, which is Nazareth, and he'd gone up north to a town called Capernaum, which is by the Sea of Galilee. It's in a region called Zebulun and Naphtali. So I don't have a map, but if you were to start at the Dead Sea and you were to go north along the Jordan River, you would reach the Sea of Galilee, and that's where Jesus was. And in, in Matthew 4... The prophecy there is is mentioned from Isaiah 9. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, beyond the Jordan, north of the Jordan, 
Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Um, I mentioned this wasn't the nicest area. King Solomon actually tried to give 12 cities in Galilee to another king as payment for some wood and some gold. And this king goes and looks at these 12 cities, and his reply to Solomon is, what have you given me, my brother? And uh, this king actually calls this area Kabul. So he calls it good for nothing, a good for nothing area, and that's kind of what it became known as. Um, Assyrians ended up conquering this area. This was a little bit more than 700 years before Jesus was born. And so it became inhabited primarily by Gentiles because the Jews fled. And so that's why Isaiah refers to it as Galilee of the Gentiles. But about a couple hundred years before Jesus was born, more like 140 years before he was born, um, this area started to prosper a little bit more. There was some trade and uh, Jews and Gentiles were kind of found living in this area. So that's, that's kind of the background on, on what's going on here. I think it's important to consider these type of things, at least briefly, to realize that this was actually real. You know, we're dealing with real events uh, that have a historical background. We're not just talking about a story. <clears throat> uh, we're talking about history, things that actually did happen. And... Um, you get a better sense of what's going on here if you look at the other uh, Gospels, the synoptics, because we don't have the whole story right here in Luke 5. But Matthew chapter 4 tells us that Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee when he saw two brothers, Simon Peter and Andrew, casting their net into the water. So we get a sense here that Jesus is watching these two men and their companions as he's walking along the sea. And so he's walking along the sea, and a crowd is there. uh, And we pick up in in Luke 5, verse 1, and see that this crowd is actually pressing around Jesus. So the front and the sides, they're listening to Jesus Christ, the Word of God, speaking the Word of God, as he stood by the Sea of Galilee. And as Jesus is speaking to this vast crowd, you get the sense that he's looking off to the side, and he sees two boats at the edge of the water. I don't think there's any other way for us to consider it. You have this vast crowd in front of him that he's speaking to, and yet he's noticing off to the side these two men and their boats at the edge of the lake. And he sees Simon and Andrew. Here it says that they were, uh, they were washing their nets. They had gotten out of their boats and were, were finishing up. Now, Jesus had met these two men before. Uh, the Gospel of John tells us that Andrew and John were with John the Baptist when he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And Andrew and John then go after Jesus, and Jesus basically says, well, what do you want? And, 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 Jesus, and they reply to him, well, where are you staying? You know, so we want to be wherever you are. 
is their answer. And so they go with him and they stay the day. And then Andrew goes to his brother, Simon Peter, and says, we found the Messiah. And then uh, Simon Peter then goes to Jesus, and that's when Jesus says, well, you know, your name is, is Simon, but now it's going to be Peter, you know, uh, Cephas. So Jesus had met these men before, and the important thing is that these men knew who Jesus was uh, as we come into this passage here. So Jesus is surrounded by these people. He's, he's preaching, and Matthew chapter 4 kind of gives the context of what exactly Jesus was preaching. And we know uh, at least that Jesus was preaching that the time had been fulfilled and that the kingdom of God was at hand and that men should repent and believe the gospel. <clears throat> I think it's, it's safe to, to say that these things were being taught to this multitude. He was teaching men to repent, teaching them that they should change their minds, that they should think differently than they had before. And so the crowd is leaning in on him, and all the while Jesus is looking at these men. Well, Jesus gets into the boat, into Simon's boat, and he tells him to push off a little bit from the land because the crowd was was almost absorbing him. So he sets off a little bit from the shore into the lake so that he then can can preach a little ways from the edge uh, to the people who are standing there on the shore. And then what we see happen in this passage is what Jesus does many times in his public ministry, and that is he speaks to the crowd, and then the crowd seems to almost disappear from the dialogue. And Jesus is left alone with just a few people, here Simon and Andrew and some of his companions. Well, what's this passage about? Simon and Andrew had been working hard all night long. They'd been diligent. They'd been persistent. They had done what they could, and the result of their labors was absolutely nothing. Now, they were fishermen. It wasn't like they just decided to go on a little excursion. This is what they did. It was their livelihood. And so we trust that they knew how to catch fish appropriately. But there all night long, they'd caught nothing. And I can almost picture them as they're there getting out of the boat, putting away their, their, their nets and cleaning them. Boy, what a waste. Well, this was pretty useless. You know, all night long, nothing, not one fish. And I, I did notice here that it says that they were washing their nets. Well, at home, if somebody, like, spills water, you know, like on the tablecloth or something, I joke and say, well, don't worry, it'll wash out, you know. But I don't think they were washing water out of their nets. I think the implication is that they'd caught all sorts of stuff except anything edible, you know. They're, they caught dirt, grime, plant matter, you know, just sludge. That's what they'd pulled up. And they were there washing out their nets. They had caught nothing useful. Well, Jesus notices this, of course, and he's just finished shouting across the water there at the lake, repent, change your mind, believe the gospel. Now is the time. And he turns to Simon and says, put out into the deep water. Now, I don't want to read into the passage things that aren't there, but all I know is that I'm a human being, and so is Simon. 
And so I can, I can think it's unlikely that Peter, as Jesus is mid-sentence, does not think to himself, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, this is not going to work. You know, oh, I hadn't thought of putting the net out into the water. Maybe that's why I didn't catch any fish. No, he, Jesus says, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now, Simon knew that Jesus had authority. <clears throat> that couldn't escape him. He had the testimony of his brother Andrew. Uh, he had listened, at least to some extent, I would imagine, to the words that Jesus had said since he was there in the boat. But his faith is not exactly strong. But he does refer to Jesus as master. He says, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing. But upon your word, like as you said, I will do as you say, and let down the nets. Now, when Jesus was in Nazareth, his hometown, Scripture says that he performed only a few miracles. It says that because of their unbelief, it says he really couldn't do anything that big, except heal a few people. That's what Scripture says. But here, Christ performs a miracle to expose, I think, unbelief. And I think that's a tremendous display of God's power and mercy. Let's pick up at verse 6. When they had done this, that is, when they had put down their nets, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, the rationalist would say, well, maybe the fishermen were just really bad fishermen. Maybe they were fishing in the wrong spot to begin with. Or maybe the tide had changed in the sea and suddenly there was a, a surge of fish. We can attempt to reason away the supernatural here, but, but the context does not allow that. Peter's response to this miracle does not allow us to rationalize the supernatural here. These men had gotten up. They had a plan in mind. They had gathered the necessary things. They had gotten their boats and their nets, and they were expecting a return for their energies. But the truth here is that God had positioned these men for failure. If you believe that God is sovereign, you can't walk away from this passage simply saying, well, you know, God used their... No, 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 no. God supernaturally positioned these men for failure so that they caught nothing. So what we see here, the heart of this passage, is what turns out to be a tremendous blessing for these men, and that is the grace of failure in the life of the Christian. Failure which exposes our weakness and our inability. Now, I'm not suggesting, the passage is not suggesting that, well, let us, let's be failures. Let's 
uh, sin so that grace may abound. <clears throat> no, I'm talking about God exposing our weaknesses, our own inability, in light of his power for our good and for his glory. Success can be a very dangerous thing in the life of the Christian because it can lead us to be self-confident. It can lead us to be satisfied with our present walk in the Lord, and we can become smug about it and self-centered. Well, Lloyd-Jones once said, it is very difficult to be humble if you're always successful. So God chastens us with failures at times in order to humble us, to keep us in a state of humility. Remember what Paul wrote, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Paul had seen things indescribable, inexpressible, and so God came and gave him something he, he couldn't get away from, something that was bothering him, that was almost eating at him in order to keep him humble. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, God shows us that the things that bind us to this world are fragile and can be snapped in a second. And so we're suddenly awakened to the fact that we are only pilgrims in this world and are made to think of heaven and eternity. God has made the Christian life to be inevitably filled with disappointment in ourselves and in our relationship to the world in order to drive us out of ourselves and deeper into God. So when we experience failure or disappointment in our lives, we can trust that God means to give us something better than what we had planned. And this is a fundamentally different position than what is taken by the person of the world who is ever only looking to him, him or herself and not to God. <clears throat> so when failure strikes the lost person, what happens? They collapse inward. They reevaluate their own strengths. They recalculate on their own position to make sure that they are mighty enough so that on the second attempt, they will achieve what they had set out to do. Now, we know that it is right that we should all count the cost, that we should plan appropriately, that we should work hard with our hands so not, we're not a burden to others. That's what Paul taught the Thessalonians. But this is never the end in and of itself for the Christian. The Christian is not about getting more strength for himself. He's about being strong in the Lord. If because of sin we experience the discipline of the Lord, it's right for us to pause, to look inward. David knew his own transgressions, he says in Psalm 51. He welcomed the righteous to come and, and smite him with kindness and reprove him to help him to see the reality of his own sin where he's blind. But the Christian does not walk about merely looking down at himself. He is looking primarily upward at God. So we're commanded not to regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, but we're also commanded in that same passage in Hebrews 12 not to faint under the discipline of the, wrong, of the Lord. It's, it's wrong for us 
to ultimately, finally, at the end of God's reproof, be left feeling discouraged. That's it's not right. So <clears throat> let's pick up again at verse 8. This great miracle had, had happened, and these failing fishermen who caught nothing now are left with two boats that are so full of fish that they're actually sinking. But when Simon Peter saw... See, something happened to Simon at that point. He had been next to the Lord the whole time there in terms of this dialogue. He'd been in the boat listening to the word of God, but now something had happened to him, and that's the difference. See, the crowd is gone. The crowd had disappeared in all this. We don't see the crowd at all left, but we do see Simon Peter before the Lord who had seen something just as was prophesied in Isaiah 9. Those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light had dawned. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. So Simon's eyes had, had been opened to something wonderful. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord. For I am a sinful man, for amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Simon and Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Peter's utter inability is met here by a revelation of the power of God, of the grace of God, of the mercy of God, of the emptiness of the world, of his own sinfulness. All of this comes to him in one act of God's provision, and it shatters him. It breaks him to the heart. He sees that he is completely unworthy of Christ. He sees all this for the first time. And we get the sense that, that Peter can't even look at Jesus because he's a sinner and Jesus is divine. And amazement had seized him and he was, he, was, he was awestruck. So when God reveals himself to a sinner, when God actually comes and light is there, there is always a sense of the holiness of God in light of our own inability. And here we see that God used human failure to display his power to men. Peter is driven by the kindness of God to see his own sinfulness and his own unworthiness. Jesus didn't stand there and rebuke. He didn't turn over the tables, as it were. He displayed his kindness to him by providing for him what he knew he didn't deserve. And, but he, Peter was ashamed in light of this. I think it's important to note here that although we do see, we do, we do have here a sense of Peter's shame, go away from me, Lord. I, I can't be with the Lord. It's not right for him to be near me because I'm a sinful man. But we do not see Peter remain in this shame. <clears throat> That's not what the Lord does to sinners. 
He doesn't leave them in their shame. The same Lord that exposes our weakness also says what? What does he say? He says, do not fear. I think that's just amazing. Why would he be afraid? Because this was supernatural. This wasn't, this wasn't some trick. He saw the glory of God in his own unworthiness. He knew he couldn't be with the Lord, but the Lord's response is, do not fear. And I think in these words, Jesus is saying to Peter, I do see that you have repented just as I have preached to these people. I do see that your mind is changed. And just as you have been changed, so I will continue to change you and to do something completely different with you than you've done before. And so the fishermen leave the two boats, two boats that are filled with fish and no doubt worth some money. It says they left everything to follow Jesus. And they go on from there and they find James and John mending their nets and they too leave their boat and their father, Zebedee, and they, they follow Jesus. So Jesus here basically had interviewed two fishermen. He saw them at a distance as he approached the lake. <clears throat> he was looking over them as he, was, as he was preaching. And he had seen that they couldn't catch anything. And he said, perfect. This is just what I want. Jesus then moves on and sees two other fishermen with broken nets, right? They're mending their nets, and he calls out to them. See, Jesus is looking for weak men. He's looking for failures in this world. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. It is a rare thing for the so-called successful person to come into the kingdom of God. God has chosen weak things in this world. So what are four things we can leave, um, four things that we could consider from this passage in closing? Number one is that God purposes weakness and failure in the Christian life to reveal to us his kindness. Peter caught nothing, so God gave him more fish than he could haul to shore. Secondly, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. This is a very unhuman way of correction. This is a divine method where God uses kindness to change people's minds, their hearts. Peter did not glory in the catch that day. He kneeled in worship at Christ. Thirdly, this passage teaches us that the Christian will always be utterly dissatisfied with the world. At the end, he will be dissatisfied with the world. God gave Peter symbolically everything. That's, I think, what the passage is showing us. God abundantly provided for him. You want fish? I'll give you fish. So what is Peter's reply? 
Well, the lost man says, this is great. Can you come fishing with me tomorrow? That's not what Peter does, is it? He says, go away from me. He says, I'm a sinful man. He says, I can't go on like this anymore. And were it not for the grace of God saying, do not fear, he would have been left there still. But he says, do not fear. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to do something with you. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. So Peter left everything. He leaves, he leaves his treasure, and he follows Jesus. The fourth thing we see is, we should eagerly expect God to use us in the conversion of many people. That's the implication. Peter goes out to fish. He can't do anything. Christ says, I'll give you fish. You see how I caught these fish for you? Now I'm going to catch men with you. God means to do something new with his people, even though our faith is weak, and his was weak here. All we have to do is obey. He says, put out into the deep water. Question is, will we do it? A failing fisherman obeyed Jesus and was changed into a fisher of men. Do you remember that river in Ezekiel 47, flowing out of the presence of God? It says there, it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it, and there will be a place for the spreading of nets. We must trust the Lord that his word will not return void. The Lord will make a place. Each day in the Christian walk is a completely new thing. And I know Brother Charles had mentioned this passage seems like several times this year, and I've been thinking about it there in Isaiah 43. Do not call to mind the former things. Peter left what was behind, you see, and he went after Jesus Christ. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. Repentance is putting the past behind you. And if you're in Jesus Christ, God has put all of our sins behind his back. So it's wrong for us to recall them. We're commanded here to forget them and to move on. He says, behold, I will do something new. He says, now it will spring forth. But if you read the passage, it doesn't end there. It ends, I think, logically, it ends with this question. He says, behold, I'll do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? To me, this question is terrifying because it proves that it is possible to miss out on the work of God. It is possible to be blind and unaware of new and wonderful communion with God through his Holy Spirit. And so Isaiah says, don't miss it. God help us to trust in him and to recognize 
that he designs our weakness for good. Amen.